0: This is Oindrila,
1: this is Felina.
0: and you are listening to the STEM, STEM Podcast.
1: It is the second week of April and we bring you the fortnightly science news update. There has been nearly a decade-long dispute over the ownership of the patent for the revolutionary genetic editing technology CRISPR. In 2020, biochemist Jennifer Doudna at the University of California, Berkeley, and microbiologist Emmanuel Charpentier, who has been at the University of Vienna when she began her work on CRISPR, have been jointly awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for their work on CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing. The contending research team is led by molecular biologist Feng Zhang at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Typically, a patent is awarded to the applicant who files first. However, this was not always the case with the US Patent and Trademark Office, at least not for another year after the first patent claim was made with regards to CRISPR-Cas9. While the Berkeley team has filed for the patent first, investigations through emails and notes into the timeline of the progress show that the broad team was ahead by a few weeks in modifying genomes in eukaryotic cellular organisms, which span most of the complex life on the planet today. Even though the importance of CRISPR-Cas9 discovery cannot be understated, there could be more interesting enzyme alternatives that could prove even more significant in the coming years, especially in terms of application to human physiology. In a host of emails and internal
0: documents obtained by NASA, it has become increasingly apparent that the response of NASA to the call for the renaming of the James Webb Space Telescope have been controversial, even within the agency. In a past episode, we did a segment on the science and development of JWST, which is named after James Webb, a director of NASA, between 1961 and 1968. In court documents obtained, including a legal case where an individual was fired for their sexual orientation, shows that discrimination based on identity was not only systemic but also tolerated during his tenure. The chief historian involved in the case, Brian Odom, stated that he failed to find direct evidence for discrimination on Webb's part. Internal memo shows that few months before the launch, Paul Hertz, the head of NASA's Astrophysics Division, consulted 10 members of the scientific community, none of whom were LGBTQIA themselves, to reach the consensus that GWST does not need renaming. Email accounts from the past year show that this has clearly been a point of contention within NASA, as astronomers scrambled to find justification in naming the telescope after an individual who was in the leadership position around the time when US government employees were
1: categorically fired if suspected of homosexuality. In other stories of debate and dispute, we discuss the ExoMars mission, the Mars rover from the European Space Agency, ESA. It was set to launch after delays with regards to the pandemic and other geopolitical issues. But as of now, it is stranded, as ESA has severed all ties with Russia in the light of the Russian invasion and war in Ukraine. Russia stepped in to make the mission a reality by providing a launch and a landing craft after the exit of the United States in 2012, among other crucial technological support and instrumentation. ESA is currently running an assessment of the current situation and has forecasted 2024 as a potential launch year, if the tension with Russia eases relatively soon. If that's not the case, a complete overhaul in hardware is imminent, which would push the launch date to 2028. A more expensive solution may just be on the horizon. ASA's Ariane 6 rocket is currently in the final stages of development and could help launch the mission this year. In more news from space, a new ultra-faint dwarf galaxy named
0: Pegasus IV is discovered through the Dark Energy Cam Local Volume Exploration or Delve survey by a group of astronomers led by William Sarney of the University of Chicago, Illinois. It has an absolute magnitude of minus 4.5, making it extremely faint. Located at a distance of about 293,000 light-years away from the Earth. And it is a 12.5 billion years old satellite dwarf galaxy of our very own, the Milky Way. Ultra-faint dwarf galaxies are typically old and metal-poor, which means they lack significant starburst regions and star-forming activities in the recent cosmological timescale. Pegasus 4 turns out to be one of the most metal-poor galaxies discovered. Ultra-faint dwarf galaxies are seen as the best candidates for remnants of the early universe, and they are also the most dark matter-dominated galaxies known. According to the astronomers, their discovery shows how little of these we know currently. It is possible that there may be many more of these systems still lurking undetected in the neighborhood of the Milky Way. You are listening to the STEM Podcast. Today we have with us Professor Melanie Schnell. She is a professor of physical chemistry at the University of Kiel and one of the lead scientists at Deutsche's Electron and Synchrotron, where she leads the group Spectroscopy of Molecular Processes. Last year, she has won the Barbara Metz-Stark Prize for her pioneering work in structural chemistry and molecular physics. In 2020, she also won the Wieck Prize. We are very happy to have you
1: here. Welcome, Melanie.
2: Yeah, thank you very much uh, for the invitation, and I'm very much looking forward to the discussion.
1: So your area of research is molecular science, and in particular, spectroscopy of molecules. So what brought you into this field? And in a more broader, general sense, what brought you into structural chemistry?
2: So I I studied chemistry, and already during the chemistry studies, I realized that I'm a molecule person. Um, so I was just fascinated by the fact that, you know, just... Like the table in front of us, everything consists of atoms and molecules that are just put together in a different way in order to make different materials. And I wanted to learn more about that. And so one way of doing that is molecular spectroscopy, where you study the interaction of light or electromagnetic radiation with the molecules, and then you can learn about how the molecules look like and what they, for example, do when you excite them with additional energy.
0: So how would you describe um, spectroscopy to a person on the street, say? What type of instruments uh, do you normally use to decipher molecules?
2: Yeah, this is an interesting question. So in our lab, we are actually doing rotational spectroscopy. So uh, we are exciting the molecules to rotation. And if you just um, take your everyday experience about throwing things you will know that for example if you throw a spherical ball it will have a completely different rotational behavior while being thrown and flying than, for example an american football which is stretched out and uh, this way by just bringing molecules not throwing them but bringing them to different rotations we can learn about their structures in a very detailed way and this microwave and rotational spectroscopy is called because The excitation frequencies that you need in order to bring molecules to rotation are in the microwave frequency range, which are very similar to our microwave oven that we have in the kitchen. Uh, Because there you are exciting the water molecules to rotation and then they will kind of bump into the neighboring molecules. and Everything is getting very excited and highly rotating and that way we uh, put energy into the system and make it warm so that it's more tasty. We are doing that kind of you know, So in our lab so we have home-built spectrometers where we basically have microwave ovens where we excite the molecules to rotation and then we can learn about their structure but if we want to go back to the more basic principle then it is really that we have the interaction of light of different wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation with materials with matters and then depending on which parts of the electromagnetic light is doing something to the molecule gives us information about the molecule itself
1: is there a specific type of molecules that you study or are you looking in a more broader sense to the behavior of many different types of of molecules
2: yeah so um, we are looking there are several types of molecules that we are investigating so we have one particular focus on chiral molecules, and I can say a little bit more about this in a minute. But we are also interested in molecules that um, are supposed to be present in interstellar space, so in astrochemistry. Despite what one would think, if you look up to the sky and you just see the stars and everything is dark in between, there's still chemistry going on also in the area between the stars, the interstellar medium. So chiral molecules are particularly interesting because they have a very specific feature. So they come in two forms. So one on the same molecule will come in two different forms, which we call enantiomers, which are like our two hands, mirror images of each other. So we have a right hand and we have a left hand. And this is the case for all the chiral molecules. They have this feature. And the interesting or fascinating thing about these chiral molecules is that the two hands are having almost exactly the same physical properties. So they have the same melting points, the same boiling points, also identical spectra. But they have very different biochemical properties. So for example, there's a molecule which is called Carvone. And Carvone is a chiral molecule. And the one hand, hand of this molecule is actually smel- smelling like spearmint. The other one smells like caraway, and um, so the molecules. Otherwise, you would not see the difference if you would take the spectrum. But our nose can differentiate between them, and the reason for that is that also in our nose we have receptors where these molecules bind to, and those are also chiral, so they also have unhandedness. And you can imagine if you just give your right hand to another person's right hand and you shake hands, that fits very well. But if you would try that right hand with left hand you feel that it feels very awkward. It just doesn't fit. And the same is the case with the Carvone molecule interacting to our nose receptor. If it is interacting with the right hand of the nose receptor, it will give a different smell than if it is interacting with the other hand. So in this way we can uh, have these different smells. And this is kind of very broad in everything of life on earth. Um, also amino acids are chiral, sugars are chiral. So all of our, body is having a particular handedness with respect to these molecules. That's one of the very intriguing reasons why people are interested in studying, characterizing and better understanding
1: chiral molecules. And we do this also with our rotational spectroscopy. A while ago you said that you can actually not differentiate it by taking the spectrum. So this rotational part of the spectroscopy is really what makes you able to differentiate between the two. No. Um, so one can really not differentiate it
2: with normal rotational spectroscopy and with other normal spectroscopy techniques. One always has to come up with a chiral version of spectroscopy. For example, one way of differentiating between the two enantiomers of chiral molecules is by using circularly polarized light. And that way, you get a difference in absorption for the one handedness versus the other handedness. So you have to somehow become chiral and by having circularly polarized light, you're having like helical chirality. What we do in our lab, we are still using um, rotational spectroscopy, but we are basically implementing what we call microwave three wave mixing. So we are exciting the molecules with two different rotational transitions that they are resonant to in two different uh, directions of the laboratory space. Um, So, we are generating a a three-dimensional space by exciting them in two different directions and then listening to a probe transition in the third direction. So, we are really having to become 3D in order to be able to differentiate and that way this works. So, it's like a special extension of the rotational spectroscopy. But here, rotational spectroscopy is very advantageous because it is very specific to molecules because the molecules have very distinct rotational transitions so you can easily excite just one molecule and not something which is very similar.
0: So this third dimension that you would look at would actually help you distinguish between these two different molecules in terms of their chirality.
2: Yes, so by, just by, by adding a three-dimensional excitation scheme, we can now differentiate between the enantiomers not by just having the normal rotational spectroscopy where we will just excite in one direction of space but this is very difficult to explain without having without showing my hands (laughs) or having a screen or something because yeah
1: yeah maybe for the listeners uh, nice to know that indeed we are moving our hands around
0: Uh, you also mentioned that chirality is sort of embedded in biology or uh, by extension life? I mean, you already mentioned a couple of systems, for example, in human body, amino acids, which are building blocks of life. Are there applications to this in biomedicine using this type of spectroscopic discrimination in terms of chirality?
2: Our technique is too new to be actually already applied. So it just got Uh, developed a few years ago and we are Mm -hmm. still working on characterizing it better and improving it. There are other techniques which are actually widely um, applied in order to discriminate between the enantiomers, and this is also an indeed really important topic within the pharmaceutical uh, industry for example which I was not fully aware of before I started to get into this field myself because I was more interested in it from a scientific point of view because just the fact that you have two molecules that have identical melting points and so on, and they're just mirror images of each other, but they have so different biochemical properties, that's just very fascinating just by itself. But of course, this is shouting for pharmaceutical applications, and there are uh, a huge number of um, of drugs that are actually based on chiral molecules. A very simple example is ibuprofen, where you have the behavior that the one-handedness is actually having the pain and fever-relieving activity, while the other-handedness is basically not having any activity in our body at all. Because it is, again, like the carvone molecule to our nose receptor, going to a receptor which is itself chiral. And so the one-handedness shows in a strong interaction with the chiral receptor, and the other one is not our hormones, many hormones are chiral as well, and so here you really see the difference in biological activity between the two enantiomers. And I don't have the numbers ready, but if you just consider like how many new medical drugs are tested and also approved for the market, the number of enantiomer um, of chiral molecules is actually increasing rapidly also. And especially also for the ones where you just have to have one-handedness, just one enantiomer, because the other one is, for example, having a completely different effect, which might not even be positive.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah,
2: I think so too. <laughs> but they use um, other techniques and to identify that. For example, uh, gas chromatography, where you have a um, chromatographic column that is equipped with other chiral molecules. And then if you have a sample of chiral molecules flying through that, Um, the molecules that are attached to this column are kind of interacting with the chiral molecules in your sample differently, and this way some of them will be held back a little bit longer than the other ones, and that way they can be separated in space. That's for example one technique to
1: separate chiral molecules also for these applications. Okay, so you also mentioned that another part of your work focused on molecules that appear in astrochemistry. This is also a topic that's exciting to us uh, and probably also to many of our listeners. What kind of molecules are those that are important in astrochemistry? I think when I give an answer to that, it will be highly biased. (laughs) Let me rephrase the question. What (laughs) molecules are you studying in the context (laughs) of astrochemistry?
2: (laughs) Of course, there is a hunt for identifying molecules in the context of astrochemistry in interstellar space that might be interesting with respect to biology. Because Mm -hmm. if we are not being philosophically, or um, more from a religious point of religion point of view, we are still interested in how the life on Earth got started. I mean, there are ideas like the Miller-Urey experiment that was already done like 70 years ago or so, where it was shown that just starting from very small inorganic molecules by using energy like um, electrical discharge or stuff like that, you can generate small biologically interesting molecules like glycine or ethanol or something like that. That was already shown many years ago, but still it is not quite clear how life got started on Earth and also how this homochirality of life that I mentioned before, that all living beings on Earth um, have the same handedness of the amino acids and the same handedness of the sugars, how that got started and what's the origin is of that. And this is something that is then strongly also interconnected with the astrochemistry part because. There are some people that think maybe it came to Earth via a comet, for example, where, you know, there were materials on there, and that way it got started just as a seed. So people are very much interested in these biologically relevant molecules because also they want to see if there might be life as we know it uh, somewhere else. That's one class of molecules. And that is, of course, strongly related to chiral molecules because if you have life, you have chirality as a first order approximation. Um, We are also very much interested in what is called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. They are a big source of carbon in interstellar space and they consist of uh, several aromatic rings like the small benzene ring consisting of six carbons that are interconnected with each other and that's why this, this is why they're called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. There are many of these cyclic aromatic rings that are connected with each other and you can imagine that they are basically like little flakes of carbon saturated with hydrogen atoms around them and saying it can have many different forms, they can be flat, they can be uh, almost linear extended, they can also have some curvature, they can have other atoms incorporated like nitrogens or so. They are known to be present. There are spectral fingerprints of them, but not a very detailed knowledge, like which ones are present, how are they formed, what do they react further to, can they be like catalysts for other molecules because they have this very uh, extended uh, platform of electron clouds, maybe this is a good anchor point for other molecules to then build uh, larger structures. And that's something that we study with basically all the spectroscopic techniques that we get in our hands.
0: So when you run an analysis of these molecules in your lab, how do you connect it to, for example, the data from space telescopes?
2: There's a a very um, direct answer to that, because when we uh, do the rotational spectroscopy, we are looking at rotational excitations, as I mentioned, we excite them to rotations. The main technique how molecules from space are actually analyzed is also via radio astronomy where they detect rotational emissions from molecules from space. So they basically take exactly a blueprint of what we are measuring because they are recording emission of rotational photons from or microwave photons from the molecules in space. They were irradiated by the sun for example and then they of course emit different types of photons depending on um, their structure and uh, their their energetic distribution but they also emit rotational photons in the microwave frequency range and this is collected on earth by huge ground-based radio telescopes one is for example in germany in uh, Eifelberg in the eiffel area close to bonn but there are also some many all over the world and um, these are big dishes you can imagine they look like satellite dishes but in 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 large like 100 meters diameter 30 meters diameter and those are collected by these dishes but then of course they only have these rotational emissions they have basically also rotational spectra but they don't know what kind of molecules they have because they get everything if we do the spectroscopy we typically know which molecules we have because we select them we put them into our experimental chamber we investigate them so we can take then the rotational fingerprints from the lab and give them to our radio astronomy friends and they are then using our data to look into their spectra that they recorded from space and compare it with um, yeah with our data. And that way, this these molecules can be identified. That's a very direct um, process and doesn't isn't even as complicated as I just described it. What they get is they get a list. Basically, they get a text file of frequency versus intensity, and then they are comparing these. Rotational frequencies that we measured at specific positions with specific frequency values with their observations.
1: Yeah, so I guess now the big question is uh, have they found these polycyclic uh, aromatic hydrocarbonates already? And if they have found them, in what places uh, do they appear? So there are two answers to that. So these polycyclic aromatic
2: hydrocarbons, which we also like to abbreviate as PAHs. Um, These PAHs, they have already been identified based on their vibrational signatures some time ago, but it wasn't possible to um, identify individual structures. Just, okay, there is a certain vibrational band that consists to a carbon-carbon stretching vibration in an aromatic molecule period, because they are all very similar no matter how the structure of the exact PAH is. For that you need rotational spectroscopy. And just uh, last year there were um, a few PAHs detected with radio astronomy and rotational spectroscopy in a cloud which is called TMC1, which is a particularly carbon-rich molecular cloud in in space. And there they found and identified the first PAHs, which was a A major uh, breakthrough that was not a work that we were directly involved in, but we followed it very closely. And we are hoping that also some of the molecules that we are investigating in this PIH section um, will be then detected um, soonish.
0: There, There are star forming regions where you have this, for example, electrical discharges and this is really the ideal conditions that you described to make these complex molecules. You know, we have these spacecrafts uh, that explore uh, smaller objects which are more accessible to us such as asteroids and comets in the solar system. So I was wondering if they have found something in these systems as well?
2: Yeah, well there was a, a very famous mission uh, which was the Rosetta mission that many people yes. were following because mm-hmm. it was flying, the Rosetta was flying for seven years to mm-hmm. uh, to land and on this comet 67P, so it was really followed by many people, the landing of this Philae Lander mm-hmm. and so on. And on that Philae Lander, there was also a gas chromatograph that I mentioned earlier that you can use and to have uh, to vaporize the sample, So that was digging out some
1: material <laughs> from the from the comet. Just to recall, this was the device with which you could separate these yes. chiral molecules yes. from their anti-chiral. With, with, molecules. with a
2: normal mm-hmm. gas chromatograph, you are not separating the chiral molecules. You're just identifying different masses, but then yes. you can make it chirality sensitive in order to then separate it by having chiral molecules on, in the uh, chromatograph itself, Mm -hmm. that is then interacting. But a normal gas chromatograph, which is also abbreviated as just as GC, is just um, identifying masses and intensities Mm -hmm. of those. But you can make it chiral. And um, so there was a group from Nice uh, around uh, Uwe, Meyer, Henrich, and they were, equipping the philae lander with exactly such a chirality-sensitive gas chromatograph. And uh, so, uh, unfortunately, the philae lander wasn't landing the way they wanted it to be, Mm -hmm. and that's why they couldn't get really a lot of sample, Um, but they could collect a little bit of sample from the um, comet in order to then analyze the masses and identify that there are different um, biologically interesting molecules. And um, so they were identified via the, the, the GC, via the grass chromatograph on the, that comet 67P by the instruments that came with the Philae lander. But there were biologically relevant molecules in there. Mm-hmm. More complexity than one would expect by just digging up some sand.
1: Yeah, so it looks like there's a lot of interesting discoveries waiting to happen in the in the coming years. Do you have a vision for the coming years regarding your work, what you are hoping to achieve or what you're looking forward to? So with respect
2: to our chiral molecules analysis technique, as you said, that was just developed during the last years and we are currently um, extending it to the level that we cannot only... Analyze chiral molecules, but that we can also control chirality. That we are able to, for example, sort a sample such that we are just exciting one handedness to a particular state, and the other one will stay in a lower state. So one is getting excited, the other one is not getting excited. And then we can, for example, do some more experiments with the excited ones but the other ones are kind of left apart. And that can be an interesting route also for applications um, where like other separation techniques, like the chiral um, gas chromatography uh, might not work anymore. And then you can, for example, look at how the one handedness will maybe bounce off a chiral surface. How is the interaction of a molecule with a chiral surface that has a chiral structure? Something like this can be envisioned, uh, but, I have another aim but this is really a long term aim and it's a little bit a holy grail of molecular spectroscopy. So what I didn't mention so far when we talked about chiral molecules is that the two enantiomers have or are predicted to have a very small energy difference but arising from the weak force So, we know that there's a a weak interaction and that was already acknowledged also by the Nobel Prize by this uh, famous um, experiment on barium atoms, I think, in the 1950s, so 1940s, 1950s. But in uh, molecules, this effect was not measured. And you can calculate that there will be a small energy difference coming from the weak force that is then leading due to parity violation to an energy difference for the two enantiomers, And in order to measure that, you would have to have very, very, very high resolution spectroscopy techniques because you're really talking about a very tiny energy difference that is then resembling itself in a very small frequency difference for the transitions. And This is something where we are very slowly, because it is very difficult, but very slowly moving towards That's one of my long-term goals, to really measure this frequency difference between the two enantiomers, to master spectroscopy to that level that
0: this is becoming possible. This is indeed uh, something I'm sure the particle physics community would also look forward to.
1: We would like to thank you very much for being here today. We really touched upon many, many topics today, I think. Uh, So thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me.
0: This is Oindrila, this is Felina, and you are listening to the STEM Podcast.